So when we began to consider what would make a good lecture to coincide with our Dressing Downton exhibition, today's speaker jumped immediately to the mind of the seven people sitting around the table. And when we approached her about the idea, thankfully, she quickly said yes. So our speaker thinks the Roaring Twenties is the most fascinating decade in American history. And in this lecture, she'll touch on some of the surprising things she learned about vaudeville, prohibition, silent movies, and fashion while doing background research for her mystery series. Mary Miley Theobald is a historian and freelance writer specializing in history, travel, and business topics. She received her BA and MA from the College of William and Mary, and I learned earlier at one time uh, dressed in colonial clothing as a profession at Colonial Williamsburg. Um, as I think a lot of William and Mary students do. Uh, she taught history and museum studies as an adjunct at Virginia Commonwealth University for 13 years. And she's written a number of books and 200 articles for a variety of magazines and newspapers, most regularly for the Colonial Williamsburg Journal. She's the author of several works of nonfiction, including Death by Petticoat, American History Myths Debunked, and First House, Two Centuries with Virginia's First Families, and two novels, The Impersonator and Silent Murders, from her award-winning mystery series set in the Roaring Twenties. And I just learned that her newest book, Rivers and Roads, Transportation in Colonial America, is due to stores any day now. So you should keep your eye open for that. So let's please give a warm VHS welcome to Mary Miley Theobald. Well, as you already heard, I'm a historian and a writer and a sometime teacher focused on colonial America. But about a dozen years ago, I decided to try something new. I tried to experiment with fiction, specifically mysteries. And of course, they had to be historical uh, mysteries because I'm much more drawn by the past than I am by the present or the future. And having spent the last 40 years in colonial in the colonial era, I found I was really tired of farthingales and, and landed gentry, and it was time to go somewhere else. So I broke out of the colonial and set my novels in the Roaring Twenties, which is easily the most fascinating decade in American history. I'm not alone in that opinion. Um, if you look at recent um, movies like um, the Great Gatsby and Midnight in Paris and The Artist, a silent film that won the uh, Academy Award for Best Picture about two years ago. Uh, Best-selling books of the 20s, like The Paris Wife, uh, The Other Typist, The Chaperone. Uh, popular television series like Boardwalk Empire and Ken Burns' miniseries on Prohibition, and of course, Downton Abbey. Um, you, you see a, a resurgence of interest in, in the 20s. Now, even the fashion world is on board. If you uh, go to any department store or ladies' dress shop, you'll notice that the style is the sort of flapper, straight, short style of, uh, of uh, dress. I did research the way everybody does research. I read books about the era, excellent books like um, Deborah Blum's Poisoner's Handbook, Great Ways to Poison People. Um, Daniel Okrent's Last Call, which will knock your socks off about prohibition. Um, I read books about vaudeville, about the film industry, biographies, autobiographies of people who were important in the era like uh, Mary Pickford, um, you know, Al Capone, uh, Louise Brooks, uh, Douglas Fairbanks. Uh, I read novels written during the 20s, obviously things like The Great Gatsby, but more, um, more helpful even was um, the, the novels by Beatrice Burton, who was the chick lit author of her, of her day, where I could really get a feel for the conversation, the, what, what the young girl was having for lunch uh, when she left the office, um, tra how train travel worked, uh, cars, fashion, features of everyday life. As a student of the 20s, I had another primary source to mine that I never got to use in the colonial era, um, silent movies. 
I started ordering silent movies from Netflix and learned a whole lot about life's mundane details, things that just don't make the history books. Uh, what did an office look like in the 20s? What did a hospital room look like in the 20s? What was shopping like? How do you make a telephone call if you're in a hotel? Um, what people wore. Yes, it's obvious uh, fashion books will tell you a lot about what people wore, but they're telling you about high society, fashion in Paris, fashion in New York. That doesn't help when your characters are poor or even middle class, and it doesn't give you social context. Looking at the lovely uh, costumes there in the exhibit doesn't tell you when they're worn or, or at what, time, what times. I mean, women wore gloves. Okay, when? To the market? to a friend's house when they were traveling? When? I don't know. And, and the fashion books won't tell you that. They may show you an image of a woman with gloves, but they won't tell you when they were used. Um, silent movies answered those questions for me. They told me things like, did a policeman's badge have his name on it? No. Uh, what did children playing in the streets wear? You know, that sort of thing. Another really great primary source is the material culture of the era what I like to call stuff. Um, vaudeville programs and magazine advertisements are singularly helpful in learning about the life, not just of vaudeville, but everyday life in the 20s. And as, as are doctor's prescriptions for medicinal alcohol, which I collect, um, I've brought some of these with me today. And um, after this is over at the table out front, I'll have my, my show and tell uh, exhibit I have also a bottle of the poison that I used to kill off several victims in book two, mercury bichloride, um, Eli Lilly over the counter, <coughs> and um, two beaded flapper dresses that date from 1925 that belong to my grandmother. Now, so in the course of all this research, I have come across some of the weirdest people and most amazing events beyond what I would ever, you can't dream up this stuff. Um, many of which I'm going to tell you today, I incorporate in my books. I call them weird but true. So I'll start with today with prohibition, because prohibition was the defining characteristic of the American Roaring Twenties. Obviously not the English, but it affected all Americans, and it turned most of them into lawbreakers. Corruption and violence leached into every level of society as judges, juries, uh, politicians, police were bought off. Uh, Chicago's mayor uh, estimated that 60% of his police force was in the liquor business, and he should know because he was too. Um, no decade has been as violent. Uh, this is the era that saw not only the rise of organized crime, but the height of the Ku Klux Klan, something most people don't realize. I certainly didn't. So you consider the dilemma facing my main character in the books is Jessie, a young vaudeville performer. Uh, once she links the bootleggers with the murderer, what's she supposed to do? The, the cops are in cahoots with the crooks. And you can't exactly just go to the police and say, I know who killed so-and-so. You know, it's not, not helpful. So it's more not so much of a whodunit that I'm looking at. It's a, what do we do now? Uh, I want to begin by reminding you that the 18th Amendment did not make it illegal to drink liquor. It made it illegal for some people to make, sell, or transport some liquor sometimes. And the exceptions are so broad and so common that um, any, it, the exceptions were legion, shall we say. Uh, my favorite few follow. People could legally drink up any supplies that they already had, and the government obligingly gave everyone a year's running start. So most wealthy people and private clubs laid in huge amounts of liquor in anticipation of the drought. Um, supposedly, the rumor has it that the Yale Club uh, set, stocked up enough to last 14 years, which, if it's true, it shows tremendous foresight on the Yaleys' part because prohibition lasted 13 years and 10 months. <laughs> the mother of silent film star, megastar, Mary Pickford, had a, a, um, a, an easier solution. She simply bought 
an entire liquor store and had the contents transferred to her basement. She was not that unusual. Now, the, there was an exemption for medicinal liquor, and that makes for a great plot device, one I used in um, two of my books. Three years before prohibition went into effect, the American Medical Association uh, went on record as saying there was absolutely no medicinal benefit in, a, in liquor. But then prohibition dawned, and the doctors saw the error of their ways. <laughs> they lobbied hard for an exemption to the Volstead Act, and they declared that whiskey was indeed a critical medicine, and they needed to be able to prescribe it. Congress obliged, they got the exemption, and doctors and dentists and, yes, even veterinarians were allowed to prescribe medicinal whiskey. And I'm thinking there must be a lot of happy dogs and horses you know, at that point, but there's a huge business develops in legal whiskey. Most of it sold where? Drugstores, yes. And soon there were as many drugstores as there were speakeasies. Some of them um, not even bothering to stock any of the sundries like bandages or Bayer aspirin. They were just basically a counter, re uh, retail counter for liquor. Uh, if you remember the great Gatsby, the, the line where somebody asks, what, where did Gatsby get all his money? And Daisy says, he owned some drugstores, a lot of drugstores. Now, Gatsby was not a bootlegger, as many people think. He was in the legal liquor business, and he was much like Charles Walgreen. Um, by the end of Prohibition, Charles Walgreen had grown his drugstore empire from uh, 20 stores to 610. Corporate literature gives credit for this astonishing rise to uh, Walgreen's invention of the malted milkshake. Another loophole gave Catholics and Jews and certain Protestants a, uh, an exemption for sacramental wine. When this became known, most urban males found religion. Churches and synagogues saw a huge increase in membership, at least on paper, if not in the pews. Uh, and there were many faux priests and faux rabbis who um, went into the wine distribution business. And who could tell the difference and who wanted to? Churches ordered far more communion wine than they had ever used in the past. The priests held some back for themselves and sold some to parishioners. And um, many urban storefronts hoisted huge signs saying, kosher wine for sacramental purposes. And never mind the many ginger-haired Irish lads who came in to claim to be rabbis and walked out with cases of sacramental champagne sacramental creme de menthe, sacramental brandy, um, all for their supposed congregations. And of course there had to be exemptions for alcohol use in industrial purposes, uh, research purposes, the chemical industry, making lots of products like, that require alcohol like uh, aftershave or perfumes. Um, the hospital industry uses a lot of uh, you know, denatured alcohol. And predictably, this led to massive abuse. One Los Angeles hospital ordered denatured alcohol by the gallon before prohibition, and once prohibition started, they began ordering it by the boxcar because it was a relatively simple process to renature, you know, to, to make it something drinkable out of the denatured alcohol. Uh, before prohibition, the purpose of an ocean cruise was to cross the ocean. That changed. A new sort of pleasure cruise came into being, the purpose of which was to go out beyond the three-mile limit and drink legally, or a short trip to Havana <clears throat> or um, the Bahamas. Now, later, Congress extended this to a 12-mile limit. But that just made a little bit longer cruise, and all it did was penalize the pathetically small Coast Guard that now had four times as much ocean to try to patrol, and so it, it didn't have any effect on anything but the poor Coast Guard. Uh, these were called party cruises or cruises to nowhere, and you know, out to see him back in a couple hours. More than one historian has credited this to the start of the vacation cruise industry. And I know you've probably heard that everybody knows that NASCAR um, grew out of the souped up cars that the uh, uh, bootleggers were using to outrun the revenue agents. 
I mean, every, everybody knows that, I think, but um, it was also true of the evolution of high-speed powerboat design, which were designed to outrun the Coast Guard. So, farmers, they had always made hard cider at home, uh, and they supported prohibition, which most saw nothing hypocritical about asking for an exemption so they could continue to make their hard cider, and uh, because farmers were such an important group, they made up 40% of the population, they got an exemption. Uh, this loophole was the fruit, fermented fruit juice loophole, which what other kind of fruit can we think of that we might ferment? Yes. Uh, commercial wineries shut down, except for the one or two that were supplying the Catholic Church. Uh, and uh, the winery production shifted into the home. As you might expect, quantity rose and quality declined. When wine was legal, Americans drank about 70 million gallons a year, and during Prohibition, that doubled. It was all homemade wine now. And this exemption for homemade wine um, led to what I like to call the don't try this at home kits. There were the Vino Sano Grape Brick Kit. And a grape brick is about the size of a brick, and it's a dehydrated brick of of grape juice and pulp and skin and stem, and it was wrapped with a label that very clearly said what not to do. Be sure you do not add yeast, sugar, and water, and be sure you do not leave it in a dark place for two weeks, or it might ferment and become wine. These grape bricks were advertised quite legally in places like Time Magazine, and to help you along, they were offered in flavors such as sherry, burgundy, uh, or port. Now, if that was too much trouble, you could just order a 50-gallon tank or barrel of, of grape juice delivered to your home and make it yourself. Or if that was too much trouble, you could hire people to come by periodically and add yeast and, and you know watch it, and then come by when it was wine and bring bottles and corks and bottle it and label it for you. And, and you know. there were similar starter kits and home helpers for making beer. Uh, home manufacture of fermented fruit juice remained legal throughout the prohibition period in some states, not all. Uh, and it, as long as it wasn't sold, which of course it was, but that was the law. As long as it wasn't sold, it was for home consumption, then it was okay. And maybe you, like me, had heard that there were two sorts of people during prohibition, the wets and the dries. It turns out there are three. There are the wet wets, the wet dries, and the dry dries. The first word is how you vote, sorry, it's backwards, how you drink. The second word is how you vote. So a wet dry is a drinker who votes dry. Now, all the presidents of the era, that would be Wilson, Harding, Coolidge, and Hoover, were wet dries. They all drank during Prohibition, some more, some less, some in the White House, you know, whatever. The vast majority of congressmen uh, were wet dries. George Cassidy, who gained fame as the bootlegger to Congress, said that uh, four-fifths of all congressmen drank liquor. And he knew because he was delivering you know, regular, regularly to Congress. And when deliveries got too much, too difficult or too much trouble, um, he was given his own office in the Cannon House office building as a storage facility so he didn't have to keep going back and forth so, so much. Uh, it was the same with most state politicians. Most of them drank, but they voted dry. And I got to thinking, why on earth is this going on? Why aren't they voting their conscience uh, or their constituents or whatever? And it was because they were terrified of the Anti-Saloon League, which is the most powerful lobbying organization that had ever existed in American politics. They were the ones who brought us prohibition. They delivered prohibition. Um, and the ASL didn't bother about your personal drinking habits as long as you voted dry. If you didn't, you were guaranteed gone at the next election, and they could do it. it think NRA. It's similar. So in 1922, the wet-dry President Harding, who was firmly under the thumb of the Anti-Saloon League, uh, was pushed to declare that foreign ships coming into U.S. ports had to be liquor-free. This was aimed at Cunard, the English line, because let's face it, if you're going on a cruise across the ocean, 
Are you going to go on an American ship when there's no liquor? Or are you going to go on the English, the Cunard Line? Nobody was traveling on American ships. So this was an, 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 the president of the Anti-Saloon League wanted to make sure that competition you know, was more equalized. Um, when the British Parliament heard about this, um, someone uh, introduced legislation that would have made it mandatory for American ships to have liquor on board before they could dock at any British port in the empire. <laughs> so cooler heads prevailed and compromise was reached. But, yeah. All this would be harmless amusement if prohibition had not led directly to the rise of organized crime, which is a legacy we live with today. Uh, of course, there was crime before there was prohibition, but it was largely local, not very violent, and not very profitable. Crime was mostly burglaries, robbery, prostitution, gambling, all bad things, to be sure, but nothing like what was to come. Uh, there was so much money to be made during, out of liquor during prohibition that crime became big business. Okay, how much money? An amount equal to the entire federal budget, the military included. So this is a huge, huge amount. With that much money in play, violence skyrocketed. Watch the Boardwalk Empire if you want to see it. I started watching that, and I couldn't continue. It just got so violent. Uh, gangsters became the biggest supporters of prohibition around, obviously. Um, they were contributing money and buying votes to make sure that the wet-dry politicians voted dry. Gangsters needed two things for maximum success. They needed dry votes in the legislatures to pass the laws, and they needed wet uh, politicians on the local government level to fail to, to enforce those laws. And this is exactly what developed in all American cities in a very short time, in a very few number of years. By the end of Prohibition, by the end of the 20s anyway, drinking out in cities was blatant. There was none of this speakeasy, knock, knock, Paul sent me, or whatever. You know, it was, it was um, it, it, you didn't need to worry about it because there was no enforcement from state and local level. There was an effort to enforce it on the federal level, but they didn't have a, anywhere near enough money, men, or uh, uh, ability to enforce it. So I was surprised when I got into the research, how, how young the gangsters were. Y'all know what Al Capone looked like. I know you do because Al wanted you to know. He wanted to be, he loved having his picture taken, he wanted to be in the newspapers, he loved being interviewed. And we all have a mental picture of Al Capone. He's short, he's stocky, he's really ugly, he's got a hat and, and big, ugh, I don't like him. And he looks like a gangster, he really does. And, and I always thought, Al Capone, he's about, you know, how old was he? Maybe. 40s, I don't know. Al Capone was 25 years old when he bossed the Chicago Mafia. By the time he was 31, he was in prison. He only ran the place for five years. If Some people have said that one of my characters is too young to be a crime boss, and that's my answer. Um, besides gangsters and the Anti-Saloon League, there were other ardent supporters of prohibition. It's an odd, it's a, they make odd bedfellows. The Women's Christian Temperance Union, the Ku Klux Klan, Methodists, Baptists, the Coca-Cola Company, and theater owners. Now, obviously, Coca-Cola is hoping that you non-drinkers will go to Coke, and the theater owners figured that if you weren't in a saloon, maybe you'd be in the theater. So that, that, was the, that didn't work out that way. But. Um, prohibition isn't the only defining characteristic of the Roaring Twenties. This is the era that saw the height of silent movies and the height of vaudeville, and that those two media form the backdrop for my mysteries. I was really surprised to learn that silent movies were actually very, very noisy to make and to watch. They were never called silent movies in the day, of course, not until talkies came on the screen. They were called the pictures. And in filming the pictures, studios used at least two, sometimes four or more cameras, Mitchell cameras. Um, when filming, they sounded like machine guns. The director needed a big megaphone to shout out the directions to the uh, actors. Move to the left, slug the fella, hit, kiss the girl, sit down now on the, you know, whatever. And they were talking them through the scenes. Um, 
there, there was a, usually a quartet of musicians in the corner. They would do what was called play the mood. So if it was sad, you'd get sad music. If it was funny, you'd get lively music. If it was scary, you'd get spooky music to get the actors to sort of emote. And at the you know, adjacent set, there could be grips, ha hammering and sawing and shouting, and a freight train probably going by, and a, a streetcar passing by. Uh, there was lots, lots of noise. Uh, watching a picture wasn't silent either. Live music, often played by an organist, but um, frequently a, a, a small orchestra at these theaters uh, would, would play the emotional underpinning for the story, just as music does today. But the music wasn't that incessant ragtime background noise that goes with, that they put now with silent movies. It was, it was much more, much more of a variety carefully composed to match the action. And a lot of times the musicians were able to add their own uh, special effects like doors slamming or car horns or galloping horses or barking dogs or thunderstorms. So there's a lot of, a lot of other sound effects, not just music. And silent films weren't always black and white. Tinting was used to add to the mood, generally using blue for night scenes, yellow for daylight, amber for interiors, and red for fire. For example, The Birth of a Nation, 1915, D.W. Griffith used red tinting on the section that deals with the burning of Atlanta. And the process involves soaking the film in dye. Uh, last weekend, uh, last Halloween, I'm sorry, I saw uh, Phantom of the Opera, the 1925 version with Lon Chaney at uh, Richmond's historic bird theater. If anybody hasn't done that, I really recommend it. They do it every Thanksgiving. Um, it was accompanied by the mighty Wurlitzer organ, and, and, and that film is tinted. And in fact, the, is a masquerade sequence is in color. It was each little frame was hand-colored. So you had color film in, in silent movies. When you're watching a silent movie, the titles, the words, they're called titles, seem to stay on forever. I'm waiting, you know, you know, change, change, let's go. It just takes forever. And I, I couldn't understand how people could be, read that slowly until I realized that most people in, or many, I shouldn't say most, many people in a Roaring Twenties office had minimal education and did read very slowly. And also, this is the height of immigration. There many, many, many people in the theater are immigrants, so they don't speak English maybe very well, or, and it's hard for them to read English. So the rule of thumb was one second per word, which is really slow. So if you've got 20 words, it's going to be up there about 20 seconds. And I've tested this. I timed it, and it's about true. I was surprised to learn that the indoor scenes, as well as outdoor scenes of the movies, were shot outdoors uh, with no, no ceiling in the room. Film production had moved to California initially in the 19-teens for the very reason of sunlight. Southern California gets very few rainy days um, in, in, during a year, and they could film outdoors almost all year long. Um, the electric lighting that existed wasn't powerful enough to light interiors very well or adequately, or it was so the kind of lighting they used was really very damaging to the actor's skin and eyes. And so it really did cause a lot of problems. And so the outdoor, the sunlight was the, was the answer to that. Which brings me to whiteface. You all know what blackface is. It's cork on black or white uh, performers. Um, but whiteface is white makeup used on the early actors because this lighting problem you couldn't really see their faces. If you don't use white face, you can't, the, the faces all turn gray and you can't really, they don't show up in the film. Um, white face lets the faces show up, but it also causes, too much of it gives people that really pasty look that we associate with silent films, uh, but it's just excessive. They, they, were, they, weren't, they were learning how to do close-ups and they were still using too much white face for the far, far shots. So that's why you get that kind of sickly pallor, especially with men, these white face and then the black lips. <laughs> it's like, um, you might think, as I did, that everybody was looking forward to talkies. And that couldn't be more wrong. Virtually nobody wanted talkies, certainly not the actors. 
uh, many of whom had foreign accents or unsuitable voices or who would have to adapt to an entirely new, more natural style of acting, and in fact, very few actors made the transition. Certainly not the directors, who thought that talkies lacked the artistry of silent films. Most directors considered um, <clears throat> silence a more elegant way of making films because you were telling the stories with as few titles as possible without cheating and falling back on dialogue. And in addition, the directors had always directed with megaphones, talking actors through the, through the scene. Well, now if you can't do that, you have to rehearse three, four, five times as often. So that makes a longer process, more expensive. So they didn't want talkies. The cameramen certainly didn't want talkies because their noisy Mitchell cameras would have to be encased in glass somehow and they would be very heavy. They wouldn't be able to move. They would lose their flexibility. The musicians who played the mood or the musicians in the theaters didn't want talkies because they'd be out of a job and they all were. Uh, theater owners would have to fork over thousands of dollars for new equipment. They didn't want talkies. Many of them couldn't afford it and had to close their doors. They feared business would fall off when they jacked up the ticket prices. Studio bosses really didn't want talkies because they could no longer sell their films internationally as easily as they had. Half their money was coming from international sales. It was so easy to just stick a different title in, in a different language. But if you've got talkies, you've got a dub. And that never works. I mean, you know how the, the, the language dialogue doesn't fit the lips, and, and, and that's expensive and difficult. So they didn't want that. Most people dreaded the coming of talkies. And when they came in 1927, they came slowly, and they were phased in over the next few years. People like Charlie Chaplin and Mary Pickford and Lillian Gish and Harold Lloyd, who were masters of an acting style that in, really became obsolete with talkies, uh, understood this and like Charlie Chaplin um, knew that he was able to connect with audiences in a way that most people couldn't through his gestures and facial, facial uh, expressions. And so he ignored talkies. He continued making silence for years. So did Alfred Hitchcock, the director, the English director. He continued making silent movies for many years and then he finally succumbed, um, but he continued to use the skills he had learned to create suspense and, and, and terror without words. And if you think of the Hitchcock films that you know and your, are your favorites, I can almost guarantee you that the scene you're remembering has no words, no dialogue, like the birds on the, on the telephone wires or the uh, shower scene in Psycho or something. The, his best scenes are the silent ones. I was surprised to learn that silent movie production was so important to the economy. It was the fifth largest industry in America. It had been the sixth, but liquor production was the fifth. <laughs> it, so it, it moved up a notch when you removed legal commercial liquor from the, from the uh, equation. Um, when we think of the 20s, we think of the flapper, the male establishment watched in horror as young girls, and they were only young girls, uh, raised the hems of their dresses, flattened their chests, bared their arms, bobbed their hair, and went unchaperoned to illegal speakeasies to slurp bathtub gin, smoke cigarettes, and dance these sinful new dances like the Charleston to this sinful new music called jazz, uh, the beaded flapper dress is the icon of this period, and I've got two with me to show you. Um, but even more shocking than the short skirt and the flat chest was the bob, the blunt haircut. People today think the bob is just a short haircut. I mean, you can get a bob, your hair bob today, it's no big deal. But it was so much more than that. Long hair had always symbolized uh, virtue and respectability. They say it was a woman's crowning glory. Uh, most women lived their entire lives without cutting their hair unless they'd had you know, scarlet fever or something. So when the first few women started cutting off their long tresses, it shocked people silly. It, it, initially, the bob was um, considered synonymous with promiscuity and sin. And preachers preached against it. Um, romances broke up. 
uh, women who worked with the public, like teachers or department store clerks, were fired for coming in with their hair bobbed. And in many places, you, a woman couldn't get her hair bobbed unless her father or her husband gave permission. So Mary Pickford, again, the superstar of her era, uh, was known for her long curls. And she would have liked to have bobbed her hair, but she was terrified. She couldn't do it. She would have lost her fans. She she knew. And she didn't bob her hair till she was 35, and her film career was essentially behind her. Um, so if you have a photograph of your grandmother or somebody as a young woman in the early 20s with bobbed hair, I want you to appreciate the fact that you had a real rebel in the family. <laughs> this is not making any, this is not a haircut choice. This is making a statement. So. Makeup is another feature of the 20s. Before then, um, makeup was something that harlots and actresses wore, and the distinction wasn't much between them. Um, if one woman wanted to wear makeup, she made her own. It wasn't available commercially. But as women, movie actresses gained status, and people saw them in the films wearing makeup. Makeup started to, the idea started to gain popularity. And it became commercially available in 1927 through the efforts of a Hollywood makeup artist. He was from Poland, and I know you've heard of him. His name is Maximilian Faktorowicz. <laughs> Max Factor, yeah. He anglicized his name. He was the first to ever sell pre-made makeup, and it was famous because it, he was a Hollywood man. You know. Uh, social habits changed dramatically during the 20s. And before then, um, men and women almost never drank together. M most men and women drank, even the ones who didn't think they were drinking drank because they were, they could have been teetotalers, but they were drinking um, patent medicine, which was almost all uh, alcohol. And it certainly did make you feel better, so. Uh, they didn't drink together, though. Women um, would, as you know from watching Downton Abbey, they would leave the dining table after the meal, the men would have drinks and smoke. Um, it, the lower class men could congregate in saloons and drink. Upper class men could congregate in clubs and drink. And women were welcome in neither. So with the advent of the speakeasy, men and women were drinking at the same space. Um, parties in the home, which had always private parties, which had always meant balls or dinner parties, morphed into a new kind of party where you stood up and drank and maybe nibbled on things. We, lay, we now call this a cocktail party, but that was a new, a new feature and considered rather, rather shocking to be eating when you weren't sitting. The, um, when the male saloon was declared illegal and replaced by speakeasies, um, that was open to everybody. So women and children could come and drink now in saloon, in, in speakeasies, and there were plenty of them. Um, it's estimated that there were 32,000 in New York City alone. Much smaller Washington, D.C. had about 3,000. Not only did the speakeasy foster sexual equality, the first stirrings of racial integration occurred there, at least in the northern uh, cities like Detroit and New York. One black columnist for a uh, New York African-American newspaper wrote, the nightclubs have done more to improve race relations in 10 years than the churches, white and black, have done in 10 decades. <laughs> so time's up. Um, I will send you off with one more weird but true fact. It was often harder to get a drink after prohibition ended in 1933. Why was that? Regulation. When the government steps in to regulate, now the number of of bars is limited. The where they can go is limited, not near schools or churches. The days of the week are limited, no longer 24-7. They can't be open on Sundays. No longer 24 hours a day. They can't be open after whatever. You set time limits on it. Um, and children were prohibited, which seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> Uh, so I, I like to think some people must have been dismayed that it was so much harder to get a drink now that prohibition was over. Thank you, and I will make a stab at answering any questions that, that anybody may have. I have helpers.
helpers to to uh, give you a microphone if you have a question, so we can all hear it yeah. back. Yes. A fascinating era and entertainingly told. Thank you. Uh, could I ask you to comment uh, on? Uh, you mentioned immigrants in the theater. Uh, was immigration a big political issue? To what extent was it a political issue in the 20s? Huge. You know, I think we're living in the 20s. I mean, th this is so much like this. I, I can't get over the parallels. Not only is immigration a huge issue, but you just substitute the word marijuana for liquor, and you've got all the same issues, uh, all the same arguments, all the same everything going on. And the the illegal crime, I know, anyway, et cetera, et cetera. Um, immigration, yes, vaudeville uh, was made up of a, a, very, a varied bunch. Um, it had a disproportionate number of um, Jews, Irish, African-American, Asian, female, um, gays, uh, it, it was, it was a, it was a place to set my books because my main character could believably not be, be a, she, she, she could believably not be a bigot, which most people in the 20s were, whether for whatever reason, religious, uh, racial, uh, all, all kinds of reasons. But because she would, she would have grown up in vaudeville where people were basically judged on what they did, not what they were. So it, it, it works for me that, for that sense. But yeah, immigration was a huge issue. This is why we're dealing, trying to keep all those undesirable immig immigrants out, uh, particularly if they came from Asia or Southern, um, Southern Europe. Where does the word vaudeville come from? Nobody really has a great answer for that. They think it sounds French, but there's, there's no, no real, real good answer. Vaudeville started, some people will say, in the 1870s with minstrel acts, and I think my 1880s is probably a little more accurate, and then it was pretty much over at the end of the 30s. And, I mean, the World War II, it's gone. It's gone, but vaudeville only lingers in, in like, Ed Sullivan is, is vaudeville. That's, yeah, you said that um, when Congress and, and Parliament started getting involved in the steamship companies and there was a compromise, what, what was the compromise? Oh, let's see, the compromise involved Britain not protesting the fact that we wanted to change the three-mile limit to the 12-mile limit. Okay. They went along with that. And Congress, our Congress said uh, the, the British could have their liquor on their ships, but they had to lock it up when they came into port. Um, things like that. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was silly. It was silly. But when, when you're watching Downton Abbey, you get the 20s, a sense of the 20s, but you don't get it all like it was in America because you missed the prohibition aspect of it. So they just didn't have the same kind of crime and um, violence level and, and, and social changes to the extent that we did. Uh, and, and we're not the only ones that had prohibition. That shocked me. Um, Canada, most, much of Canada, except for French, Catholic, Quebec, was uh, dry. They could still make liquor as long as they shipped it to the United States, but <laughs> they weren't supposed to drink it. Iceland was entirely dry. Uh, Norway, Sweden, and Finland had lots of laws of restricting liquor. Uh, Tsar Nicholas II declared vodka illegal. Nobody paid him any attention. I mean, there was no, it was another example. Nobody enforces it, so it's not there. But other countries did, did experiment with this. It wasn't just you know, crazy Americans. You mentioned the four presidents that were in office in the span of time. Um, did they differ very much on their own personal attitudes toward prohibition? Oh, um, yeah, I guess. Um, let's see. 
Harding was a big drinker, and he drank at the White House, and he had liquor at the in the White House with meals. I mean, that was never mind. Um, who, let's see, Hoover. Hoover was a little upset when his wife gave away or poured out all his liquor when it came. She was a teetotaler, and he really wasn't. But he was the one who every every day he would walk past the Belgian embassy in the evening on his way home from work and stop in at the Belgian embassy, which is Belgian soil, and have a drink with his friends and then go on home. So he didn't, I don't think he had liquor in the White House, but, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, they were all a little different. I mean, Wilson, Wilson let me think, Wilson. I don't remember. Remember what he, they all drank personally. Some a little, some a lot. Um, what they did as president, I'm not, I'm not so sure about Wilson. I'm probably not using this correctly. I may just yell over it. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, okay. Um, you read in a lot of fiction that, uh, in books like Angela's Ashes, let's say, mm. that, that a lot of the uh, staunch unmarried women who were fighting to help bring about prohibition uh, were upset by the Irish urchins that they saw on the street, the Irish men that were always drunk and not working, and their Irish wives who were constantly working. Um, is there truth to that? Sure. And how, how, how big a part did that play? Uh, a lot of what is anti-liquor is really anti-immigrant. It's, it's, we don't like those filthy immigrants who come here and drink. It's the Germans who bring beer here and the Irish who bring whiskey, and without them, we'd all be fine. Oh, and the Italians who bring wine. Excuse me, I left them out. Um, and so, the, yeah, it's very negative, uh, but that's why... That's where the Ku Klux Klan comes in so much, because they are hugely... They're, they're so pro-prohibition, but they're very anti immigrant uh, and particularly Jews, but it, it's, it's because it, the two are, it, it, are, are, are so entwined in, it, they can't be separated. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's those low class immigrants who are causing the problems. So yeah, there's a lot of that. And, and it's to some extent, that, I mean, it's true that a lot of the immigrants, that's what they did, they went to a saloon because that was the only place they could gather and, and have you know, their, their own kind, and, and it was sort of like home. And, and so there, there is some truth to it, yeah. And, and we all know liquor is definitely bad. I mean, it's, there's always a problem with excessive drinking. And it's, it's, a lot of the men probably couldn't get jobs. Well, um, I think most people were working or they were not eating. Yeah, um, there's no safety net, so. rather than taking it home, of course, and that's, yeah, yeah, certainly. And that was a big problem with the, the uh, that's one of the reasons the Women's Christian Temperance Union has been supporting temperance. They were supporting temperance. That's different than prohibition because they started out wanting just, just drink less. And, and when prohibition started, the whole movement, they meant prohibition of liquor not prohibition of wine and beer, that was considered okay, or cider, hard cider, that was okay. And the pro, if the prohibition forces hadn't overreached, I mean, they pretended that that's all they wanted. Oh yeah, we're just getting rid of alcohol. I mean, liquor, whiskey, you know, gin, rum. Um, and they pretended that's what they wanted. And then when the last minute came, when the, when the uh, amendment had already been passed, then they get to define, the Volstead Act defines exactly what we mean by intoxicating beverages. Well, it was understood that if you had five, six, seven percent, oh, that'd be okay, you know, but no, it's, now it's going to be 0.5, which is nothing, so nothing is acceptable. That was a big shock, but it was too late by then. If they hadn't overreached, I think we may have had prohibition for a whole lot longer. And they might have kept the, the illegal alcohol, liquor, out. 
if they let the moderate drinks in. But yeah. you spoke about the uh, uh, lack of local and state uh, enforcement of the Volstead. Yeah. Was that largely true here in the Puritanical Bible Belt? In in pure, when what? Was that so here in the Puritanical Bible Belt? Where you had fewer immigrants and fewer... You know what? It was more self-patrol self then. Um, if people, you know, plenty of people didn't drink anyway. And so they were happy to have prohibition. It didn't change them, their lives. Other people were law-abiding, and they were going to follow the laws. At least they did for the first few years of prohibition until it became obvious that that wasn't necessary. But it was the state and local governments that, even if they initially... Uh, approve some money for enforcement. You got to have people and, and to enforce this. And when your budget doesn't allow it, that there's no enforcement. And in certain states, like Maryland, never they were furious about the whole thing. They were, they never voted a nickel to enforce. They said, ah, it's your you're the federal government. You enforce it. It's your law. New York started paying for a little bit of enforcement, and then quickly said, we can't handle this. It's not going. It's not going to happen. So they stopped voting any money. And a lot of places did that. I suspect in Virginia, because it's always been such a tight-fisted um, um, legislature, um, I doubt they were spending any money much at all on enforcement. And you, know, you, you just overlook, overlook any bootlegging that goes on, any stills in the woods or whatever. Are you familiar with the story of when Winston Churchill came to Richmond? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I read about that in the book, the um, first house book about the governor's mansion. Uh, yeah, he, um, how did that go? He, it was during Prohibition, Governor Byrd was in the mansion, and he, Churchill was known for needing a, at least a quart of brandy a day or whatever, and and Governor Byrd was abiding by the laws. He was not drinking any alcohol in, in the mansion. And he called up um, a friend of his. Now, who was it? Brian? Somebody. Yeah, and said, I, I'm in a terrible fix. I've got to have <laughs> a quart of whatever area. And, and every day on the porch, there was a quart of something left there. So it, it all worked out. But. Yeah, okay, thank you.